So I always thought that the villain of this movie, Don Raphael, I was always like, yeah, that guy's Spanish. And then for whatever reason, watching it this time, I was like, that is a white man given (laughs) a very pointy Tony Stark mustache and goatee. And they're just saying that he's Spanish. (laughs) Not only is he a white man, he's a white man whose name is Stuart. (laughs) I think Anthony Hopkins is more convincing of a Spanish guy than a hundred percent agreed. And that's not good, Keith. The fact that we're saying that is not good. We do need to address Anthony Hopkins' long-haired wig, though, because that thing has not aged well. No. It's not even that, like, it's offensive. It just looked like shit. (laughs) (laughs) That was my biggest problem with it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. We are three British actors playing Spaniards with nothing better to do. I'm Matt Johnson, and I only drink alcohol if it has a decapitated head brewing in it. And I'm Keith Baker, and I'm only worth 200 pesos. And I'm Austin Terry, and I made a mistake. I accidentally watched Jim Carrey's The Mask instead of The Mask of Zorro. Well, stay tuned for that, Austin. We might be talking about The Mask in a future Our Favorite Movie series. Who's to say? Who knows? Who cares, though, because on today's show, we are closing out this round of our favorite movies with The Mask of Zorro. The way this series works is one of us picks one of our favorite movies of all time, has the other host watch it for the first time, or if it's overdue for a rewatch, and then we break it down to determine, is this still one of my go-to best-slash-favorite movies? So far, we've covered Cloud Atlas for me, Hell or High Water for Keith, and Prisoners for Austin. So be sure to head to your podcast feeds to check out our latest entries to the series, and we're about to get to my next pick. But before we get into that, Keith, we are halfway through our newest bonus series covering Loki on Disney+. Plus. How's that going so far? Man, it's going well. I can't believe we're already three episodes in. So yeah, we've been covering those. We've been uh, releasing those every Friday. So all of Loki uh, episodes come out on Disney+, Plus every Wednesdays, and those will continue to release every Friday. So we have, what, three episodes left, guys? Is that right? Yes, sir. That's right. Dang. We're halfway through already. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the next three. Hopefully we'll get some answers about the TVA and the Timekeepers this week. For sure. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. So yeah, sounds good. Be sure to keep an eye out for those when those episodes drops. We have some great content out now and some more exciting stuff on the way. Please subscribe to The Arnie's wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Leave us some reviews with your thoughts, and also we want to hear from you. So send us a message on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us thearniesmedia at gmail.com. Let us know how you're feeling about all this good content. But now, it is time to get to another one of Matt's favorite movies, 1998's The Mask of Zorro. I saw The Mask of Zorro kind of on a whim when I was a kid. I was in Target, if I remember correctly, and I saw this DVD cover for a movie, right? And I was always one of those kids, whether I was walking through Blockbuster, the grocery store, or in this case, Target, I always wanted to go down the DVD aisle. I wanted to see what stuck out to me. Because when I was that young, all I really cared about was how cool the cover was. Well, hold on. Was this uh, this a movie bin that you dig through? No. You know what I'm talking about? Great question. Great question. But no, this was, they were all displayed on the wall. So we had easy access. And I saw Antonio Banderas. I saw Sword. And I saw Anthony Hopkins with a pretty cool goatee and a super skinny mustache. Now, you're probably thinking, Matt, you were a kid. Why would that stick out to you? And I'm here to tell you why. It's because Antonio Banderas played the dad from Spy Kids. And the second I saw him, I was like, I got to get this movie. 
and luckily, my parents were down to pick it up, and once I watched it, it became an instant favorite, I gotta say. The way they balance a serious revenge story on two fronts with two different people, a pulpy 1900s action based on the original stories, comedy, and for me, genuinely amazing practical effects along with the choreography, this movie is just second to none for me. I also love how unlike some of the source material, this movie took real-world elements and people and folded it into this fictional story. It kind of feels like Assassin's Creed in that way, since Joaquin Murrieta was the real bandit that served as the inspiration for Zorro, and this movie created the character of Alejandro to be his fictional brother that took up the mantle from the aging Don Diego, who is the Zorro in the source material. I gotta know, though, are you, uh, are you referencing the Michael Fassbender Assassin's Creed or the video games? Preferably both. The movie is probably the best entry Ezio you've ever done. <laughs> Get down from there. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I watch this movie every so often, and I've actually seen it within the last couple of years before this podcast was even a thing. So my love for it has never really wavered. And sure, I definitely have some nitpicky plot stuff and convenience things here and there. Uh, like most movies, but at least this one has style. And the performances here are all top-notch, particularly Antonio Banderas, who I genuinely think is just one of the best and most charismatic actors working today. The conclusion is immensely satisfying, and I miss movies like this. The whole action-adventure genre now, for me, leans more towards action, which is cool, but I really miss these swashbuckling adventure stories. Keith, I want to get your thoughts first, since I know you were a fan of this one when you were a kid as well. Did this movie hold up for you? And then Austin, since this was your first time, how did this movie from 1998 hold up for you, kind of viewing it from a modern filmmaking perspective? Yeah, my history with this movie, I did not see it when it came out in 98, because I would have been only like three years old, but I did see it probably three or four years after that. Maybe I was like seven or eight. Anyway, saw it then, then my dad showed it to me, probably watched it about four, five, maybe six times, you know, leading up to like my teenage years. And it was always just a good comfort movie. Uh, we'd always just kind of put it on in the background for some things, and every now and then we just, you know, straight up just watch it. Yeah, comfort movie is what I think of when I when I look when I think of Mask of Zorro, and I always just love the performances. And as, as I got older, I started realizing who the actors actually were in it, like Anthony Hopkins. I really didn't know who that was until I got older. But Antonio Banderas, like you said, Matthew, he was from Spy Kids, so that's that's where I knew him from, and I always thought he was badass. And yeah, it was an enjoyable movie, but I um. I hadn't seen it since I was probably, I don't know, 15, 16 years old. It's been a bit, so was, I was excited to rewatch it. And uh, yeah, I have to say it still holds up. It still brings back that nostalgic feeling I've always had for it. So um, I'll get into it more in detail later of why. But yeah, for me, it still holds up. For me, like Matt said, this is actually my first time. And for anybody who listened to our Loki episode last week, we did come to the realization that I had seen this film. However, I have a bit of a retraction from that statement. I think I have only seen The Legend of Zorro. I don't I, think I had ever seen The Mask of okay. Zorro. This is actually worth bringing up, Austin, because it's possible. I don't fully remember. I know Legend of Zorro came out in 2005, and the only reason I know that was because this is such an inside baseball thing, but this was one of the first movies, if not the first movie, to play at the Market Street Theater in the town where we grew up. It was like the first big movie to play when it opened, and I saw it there. And I'm not fully sure if I had seen The Mask of Zorro first. I can't remember the timeline there. Because I definitely saw The Legend of Zorro in theaters. Yep. And I only remember him cutting a Z into somebody's butt in because, that movie. And Austin, whenever you asked me about that Loki episode, I was like, 
hmm, maybe Austin has seen that. But then I thought about it for a second, and I was like, but wait a second, he cut Z's into like 30 different people's clothes in the sequel, <laughs> so maybe he's only seen that one. So when Matt recommended the movie for the series, my first thought was, he wants to watch the Butt Z movie? That doesn't make any sense to me. That movie's not good. The Butt Z. <laughs> and like you, like you guys have said, I mean, you guys have kind of the emotional childhood connection to this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one was always going to be a tough sell for me because I'm not a huge old movies guy. It, it did um, come off better than I expected it to from when it started. I think the only reason this movie is a semblance of good is because of Antonio Banderas, just the way he plays Zorro. He's so charismatic. He's so easy to root for. Um, I have issues with like some of the action. I think the choreography is amazing, but it's almost too choreographed. Um, mm. But for the most part, I had fun with it. I'm certainly not going to be as high as this one as you guys are. I don't think it's a bad movie. I kind of just think it's just okay. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at going into this episode this week. Yeah, it's funny you bring up The Legend of Zorro, Austin, because when I was trying to like rack my brain on like the memories of this movie, I kind of started uh, like intertwining the two. I, was, I started getting memories from Legend of Zorro and see, like you said, the, the butt Z scene. I, that's in my mind. There's also a, like a train scene that blows up in The Legend of Zorro. I kept waiting for them to get on a train in this movie, <laughs> yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, so I started getting memories from this movie and that movie at the same time while I was trying to remember what happens, and then when I finally watched this one, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right, and I started distinguishing between the two, but yeah, Legend of Zorro, I think I saw in theaters as well. I do think, though, if I had been, my first viewing of this had been when I was like six, seven, or eight, I think I would be just as in love with this movie as you guys are. It's yeah. just a little bit harder now to look back and kind of have the same affinity that you guys have for it. Yeah. I think that's super fair. I certainly can't argue with it. Whenever I was rewatching it this time, there was definitely elements that I was like, hmm, yeah, that's weird. Or that does make it feel like an older movie. But luckily, I think Keith would probably agree, since we've watched this movie so many times since we were younger, we have that nostalgia for it. So honestly, regardless of any of our individual thoughts, I think this is going to make this conversation even more exciting, because how do we kind of differentiate that? And luckily, we have Austin here, who is somebody just watching this from a kind of modern perspective, so there is no nostalgia. So I think we're about to get into a really good convo. Okay, Matt, before we run down the cast and crew, why don't you just kind of remind everybody, in case they haven't watched the 1998 classic that is Zorro, remind us what happened in The Mask of Zorro. All right, so in 1821, Old California, after humiliating the evil Spanish governor Don Rafael Montero, the mysterious black-caped mask avenger of the oppressed Don Diego de la Vega, a.k.a. Zorro, finds himself incarcerated. With his only daughter raised by Don Rafael as his own, the grizzled swordsman makes his daring escape nearly two decades later and takes under his wing the unrefined outlaw Alejandro Murieta to teach him the ropes and hopefully become the next Zorro. Now, the stage seems set for the ferocious final confrontation as the new young rapier wielder prepares to thwart the despicable governor's sinister plans. Can Alejandro live up to Zorro's legendary name? Keith? Hit me with it. Who's our cast and crew for this banger of a movie? Yeah, cast and crew for The Mask of Zorro. So this one is directed by Martin Campbell. You may know him from GoldenEye, Casino Royale, Edge of Darkness, Green Lantern, and the sequel, The Legend of Zorro. Uh, it's written by John Escal, Ted Elliott, and Ted Rossio. You may know them from Aladdin, Men in Black, uh, The Road to El Dorado, Shrek, Treasure Planet, and all the Pirates Caribbean movies, National Treasure, and many more. So, big resume for these guys. Yeah, this was, 
I had no idea. Like, obviously, this is just one of those weird things that you don't look up unless you're doing a show like this. But does this does this stand out to you guys? I mean, they these guys primarily work together doing animated movies, and most of them were really big hits. So the fact that they went from stuff like Aladdin and Shrek and Treasure Planet, and then they randomly did like a live action Mask of Zorro years before they ever did stuff like Pirates of the Caribbean or National Treasure for Disney. I mean, I just thought that was pretty cool. It reminded me of like Brad Bird, who did Iron Giant and The Incredibles, who later was brought aboard to direct Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. I mean, what do you, I mean, does that stand out to you guys? I mean, I don't know if there's any connection. The fact that these guys just directed animated movies and then this randomly, it just kind of stood out to me for whatever reason. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because while I was watching it, there, there's just something off about this movie. And I, I don't know what it was. For a while, I thought it was that. The action is staged to be comedic, but the story itself is very serious. But now this kind of does feel like an animated kids movie. Like a lot of the action is over the top. The explosions are big and bold. It really does kind of feel like Treasure of the Planet and some of those other ones that they've they've worked on. So maybe it is just that history that they just took in the live action and tried to do what they could just with the experience that they've had in the industry. Yeah, I totally agree, Austin. I was going to pretty much say what you just said there. Yeah, it, like, yeah, I think you mentioned earlier, Austin, like the choreography. It definitely does kind of feel like an animated choreography with the action and all that. And the story does have a serious tone, but, you know, it's kind of in the background, I guess. And, and it almost feels like it is for kids, even though there is a yeah. lot of sword play. Like, it's not violent. Yeah, it's a very family-friendly movie, is how I would put it. Yeah, for sure. Movie score by James Horner. You may know him from Aliens. Field of Dreams, Glory, Braveheart, Apollo 13, Titanic, and Avatar. So another big resume there. Going into our cast, we got Mr. Antonio Banderas as Alejandro Marietta, also the new Zorro. Catherine Zeta-Jones as Elena Montero. Stuart Wilson as Don Rafael Montero. Matt Lester as Captain Harrison Love. And Sir Anthony Hopkins as Don Diego de la Vega, the original Zorro. So, guys... Cast and crew was just mentioned here. Any highlights, any negatives, what you got? Yeah, all three of us are obviously going to shout out Antonio Banderas, I'm sure. For me, though, I just could not help but notice that score by James Mm. Horner. That score and that soundtrack really does make this movie. It made it way more fun. And I I think with a different score, I don't know if this movie gets remembered as fondly as you guys are remembering it because like the theme really does get stuck in your head. Yeah, 100%. It's a great score. I, I, I'm always bad with remembering scores, but with this one, anytime I rewatch it, the second that opening scene comes up, whenever it's like the prologue, essentially, the first time you hear it, whenever Zoro's or seeing him in action for the first time and that score comes in, is like, okay, yeah, I remember this like verbatim. It's one of those weird things. The second you hear it again, it's like, okay, I'm back in it. I got it. Such a good score. And yeah, I'm with you, Austin. I mean, the best person in this movie is Antonio Banderas, and thank God he's the lead or else it might feel a bit weird he's so good in every single aspect of the movie and don't worry everybody out there we yes we are going to be talking a lot about batman in this episode because batman and zorro the characters are very intrinsically tied together but the fact that antonio banderas plays this drunk this outlaw and then later he plays a guy that's genuinely kind of out for redemption and then later plays this weird dichotomy where he's actually a rich guy, but he's not really. He's just pretending to be charming, but then he has a different relationship with his butler, and that butler isn't a butler. It's actually Anthony Hopkins, the original Zorro, and then later he plays his fucking Zorro. He's playing like five different characters in this movie, and every single one of them is 
you just believe it. And it's because he's so good. And the characters actually acknowledge like, this is kind of weird. Like, I don't know if I can do that. And then he does it. It's like, okay, that's pretty cool. So he's the standout for sure. I think everybody's good in the movie. Yes, there is some weird casting choices, but I do like the performances, but he's the standout for sure. It's such a switch too. after uh, Anthony Hopkins shaves him, like Antonio Banderas yeah. becomes such a totally different character. And it's he just like flips it on a dime. Mm hmm. Yeah, I love the scenes where he like whenever Anthony Hopkins' character tells him to put on that gentleman act, and he, I mean, he puts it on. It was perfect. I just love how he's like kind of wooing all the the higher ups in the Spanish government or the California government. Yeah, I thought that was so, so cool. cool. So I also like cool. that you see Anthony Hopkins smiling to himself as he's listening to. Yeah, him he's approving. Charming. Yeah, it's so cool. And that, and that's a great point, Austin. Yes, again, I'm, we're not going to talk about it too much, but Anthony Hopkins, the fact that he's playing a Spaniard. It's weird, but is the performance good? Yeah, it's so good. I will say this, and Keith, I got to get your reaction to this. I want to see if Austin cared at all. I, I hadn't, like I said, I hadn't watched this movie in a couple of years. There was one moment in this movie while rewatching it today that genuinely, I'm not being hyperbolic, genuinely gave me chills. And it's whenever um, uh, Alejandro's drunk after his brother's dead and he's at the bar trying to drink and he has his brother's necklace on. And then, of course, D Don Diego comes up to him. And then he's like, why would you even help me? And then he sticks the, store, the sword through the necklace and like pulls him towards him. And he's like, because you once did the same thing for me. And it's like, oh, it's so cool, yeah, dude. And then he realizes that he's talking to his hero, Zorro, that's been gone for 20 years. So cool. I didn't get chills from any scenes in this movie. <laughs> Not going to lie. <laughs> Come on, Austin. That's fair. That's fair. You got to watch it like 10 more times and then you'll catch up to Keith. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's it for cast and crew, guys. Austin, why don't you run us through the fun facts, trivia, or any production nightmares for this movie? Yeah. So Steven Spielberg is an executive producer on this movie and his production company actually began like the initial process getting this movie started. Spielberg was considering if he wanted to direct or not, but he instead chose to do Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, I read that too. Makes sense, obviously. Steven Spielberg's kind of cool. I like that he's one of those guys that, I mean, he'll consider projects and then whenever he turns them down, he does want to stay involved creatively. And whether or not you like this movie, I genuinely do feel like it does have elements of like a Spielberg kind of feel and touch to it like there's elements that feel like the original indiana jones movies again like i talked about at the top it's not just an action adventure movie it has the adventure as the focus that swashbuckling nature so yeah i'm glad that St spielberg stayed on in some fashion so after spielberg opted not to direct michael solomon uh, was hired to direct and sean connery was cast as diego de la vega however solomon and connery would eventually leave production and robert rodriguez would be hired and cast antonio banderas as alejandro however robert rodriguez in the studio could never agree on a budget and eventually martin campbell signed on while banderas chose to stay with the production rodriguez actually wanted to make the movie for 42 million dollars but the studio was willing to only go to 41 however the studio would end up making the movie for 60 million dollars totaling to 95 million with marketing. Okay, wow. That's pretty interesting because I was going to say I was looking at it earlier for like reception stuff and the budget is 95. So the, so the fact that they rejected a guy that wanted to make it for less than half of that's pretty crazy. But to be fair, I guess, I mean, in 1998, what did Robert Rodriguez, I guess he had made El Mariachi. I don't know if he had made anything else besides that. That's what he was coming off of and he was known, the studio was actually impressed that he made El Mariachi with like low budget techniques yeah. like they were they were hiring him for the low budget production value 
but then he still wanted more than the studio was willing to pay him. Gotcha. Well, we can't bury the lead here, Keith. Sean Connery <laughs> would have been horrible. <laughs> yeah. Thank God Anthony Hopkins took it on. I have, I can't believe we're saying thank God Anthony Hopkins is in this. <laughs> I <but> know. <laughs> seeing Sean Connery playing a Spaniard is even worse. We've never seen him hide his Scottish accent. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm been... Joro. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> There actually must have been a bit of backlash to that announcement, too, because uh, Solomon, who originally cast Sean Connery, he did have statements saying every other cast member would be Latino, but he was going to keep Sean Connery in the lead. (laughs) The lead. (laughs) What a weird statement. Oh, well. All right, Austin, what else you got? So Martin Campbell, who was eventually directed this movie, uh, he actually never wanted to make this movie. He turned the studio down three times until Spielberg asked him personally. Uh, Hopkins also turned down the role. He uh, felt like he wouldn't be able to do the action due to a bad back. However, he shortly after that conversation had back surgery and decided to opt back into the production because he loved the script so much. Yeah, whether or not he was doing the stunts, I mean, I did notice during some of the training scenes, you can definitely see... Like when, you know, he's fencing and fighting, like you can see Anthony Hopkins face. So, I mean, he definitely did some of it at least. So good for him. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of the stunts that um, Anthony Hopkins did, but Antonio Banderas did all of his own stunts and he went to like sword training school. And I guess his sword trainer called him one of the best screen swordsmen he'd ever seen. And the cool thing is like that was the same swordsman that trained Errol Flynn, <laughs> like <laughs> the original Robin Hood. Yeah, he actually said he's the best he's the best swordsman since Errol Flynn, which is pretty crazy. Which is pretty yeah. cool. So the ending scene with Elena and Alejandro's marriage and birth of their son was actually shot three months after production wrapped because the producers were worried Diego dying in Elena's arms was too dark of an ending for families. I like the ending. It, yeah, it's cliche having him do the exact same thing that Diego did at the beginning with the whole telling the story of Zorro and like you like play fighting with the flowers over the crib. But I mean, that's the ending you got to have, right? And of course, you have him calling the baby Joaquin, so he knows ever his brother. I mean, good ending. Glad they didn't end it with his death. That would have been kind of a lame ending. I feel like kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, Catherine Zeta-Jones uh, was given the role of Elena. However. The other two that were up for consideration were Shakira and Salma Hayek. Uh, Salma Hayek Salma would have been, right. been good. Yeah. yeah. Shakira, I don't know. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Shakira act, to be fair, so <laughs> I don't and, know. Uh, Spielberg actually personally requested Catherine Zeta-Jones, so another reason, like another direct involvement of Spielberg being a producer. She was perfect, I think, for this role. And lastly, before we get into critics... Catherine Zeta-Jones and Antonio Banderas have both separately stated that they were both aroused during the dress-cutting-off scene. <laughs> I'm <Cool>. so aroused. <laughs> wow. I, want, I mean, I guess I can understand why Antonio Banderas would be. I guess I kind of wonder why she would. <laughs> when, but at what point did she get aroused? Whenever the wires pulled her dress all the way off? <laughs> I think it was more so just due to how charming and charismatic Antonio Banderas is. I was going to say, guys, we don't, we never talk about this, but I will say, Antonio Banderas, in this movie, watching him, I got to say it, he looks like a 10 out of 10 kisser. I mean, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't fault him. Every kiss he put on her, I was like, whoa, he's really going for it. Her, him and Catherine Zeta-Jones, I think they probably had a fling during the movie, maybe. Yeah, I don't know if Antonio Banderas was married at the time of filming, but regardless, it doesn't look like it. I was noticing that, too. I was like, damn, they're really making out. I didn't notice that before. 
maybe after they got done with the dress cutting off scene, Catherine was like, hey, Antonio, bring your sword back to my trailer later. Ew. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins brought his weird, like, wig. <laughs> uh, all right. So that's the end of our uh, fun facts, production nightmares. Matt, I would love to hear what the critics thought of The Mask of Zorro. I'm going to guess it was mixed. Okay, well, you might be surprised, Austin, because The Mask of Zorro has an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it was given a consensus of Antonio Banderas returns as an aging Zorro in the surprisingly nimble, entertaining swashbuckler. Um, Richard Schickel of Time Magazine praised Zorro as a summer blockbuster which prayed tribute to the classical Hollywood swashbuckler films. The action in this movie, most of which takes the form of spectacular stunt work performed by real as opposed to digitized people, is motivated by simple, powerful emotions of an old-fashioned and rather melodramatic nature. Zorro exceeded the expectations of Roger Ebert as well, who called it the best Zorro film to date. Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle, though, gave equal credit to all the performances and the stunt work, but did call out, it was a little bit weird that some of these actors are Mexicans, apparently, with British accents. Why does nobody <laughs> know who Zorro is? And why is nobody calling out that Don Raphael is weird either? <laughs> I was glad that Nicholas all said, why do these guys have British accents? <laughs> Anthony Hopkins' accent gets so noticeable by the end of the movie. He's yeah. not even trying by the, by the time the credits roll. <laughs> 100% agreed. Uh, Todd McCarthy, on the other hand, of Variety found the film's length to be somewhat overlong and lacking the snap and concision that would have put it over the top as a bang-up entertainment, but it is closer in spirit to a vintage Errol Flynn film than anything that's come out of Hollywood in quite some time. Internet reviewer James Berardinelli compared the tone and style of The Mask of Zorro to producer Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. While The Mask of Zorro isn't on the same level, it's not an altogether ridiculous comparison. Even though Zorro doesn't feature the nonstop cliffhanger adventure of Raiders, there's still plenty of action and daring do. So, when it comes to the box office, I was actually pretty surprised here in a good way. The Mask of Zorro um, was released, of course, in 1998. The film dropped from its number one position in the second week with the release of Saving Private Ryan, which we mentioned and there's something about Mary, but it did eventually earn $250 million worldwide, and that was off a $95 million budget, so it was a success, including marketing costs. With the commercial success of the film, though, Sony ended up selling the TV rights of Zorro for $30 million in a joint deal to CBS and Turner Broadcast Systems, a.k.a. TBS. The only reason I bring that up, and we might talk about this later, is this is our last live-action adaptation. We got Legend of Zorro a few years later, but in the last over 15 years. This is like an iconic character that we have not seen anything from. They've sold the TV rights. The film rights are out there. We haven't seen anything else. So maybe later on we'll talk about what we want to see and some rumors of what might be possibly in the works. Let's go ahead and break everything down. It's time for our roundtable discussion. Guys, who wants to start us off today? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, I mean, this is one of those movies I watched a bunch as a kid and, you know, always had a good time with it. This movie is still, like I said, such a comfort movie for me. So it's just a good one to put on. And I would argue it's a very rewatchable movie. I think it just has to do with it being a perfect combination of so many things. I mean, it has that simple vigilante revenge story. Uh, it's fun and somewhat corny action in there and great performances all around 
And I think just the overall setting of it being in the Spanish ter- territory, mid-1800s, giving it that Western kind of feel. So, I mean, Matthew, what do you have to add to that? Is there any aspects I just listed there that you agree with? Uh, and Austin, first time viewing, obviously. How does it compare for you? I mean, watching it for the first time in our current time period. Yeah, Keith, I think you really nailed it. I mean, all the kind of mixture of things that you listed there is why I like the movie as well. Um, there's so many things mixed together that shouldn't work, but for me, it does. You're so right. Zorro, in pretty much every adaptation, has kind of always been this weird character where it's like, he is going out there killing people for good, but the way he kind of fights and moves around acrobatically, it is a little bit goofy, and not not in a bad way. It's just like kind of jumping around. He always has a big smile on his face. He's laughing while he's fighting. It's kind of different than we expect from most vigilantes, and I thought this movie did a pretty good job of that. I mean, one of my favorite scenes is whenever he goes to the barn. It's basically his first outing as Zorro, and I do air quotes because Anthony Hopkins didn't sanction it, so he goes out with his own mask and cape, and ever he's fighting all these guys at once, and he escapes like a crowd and he makes his way to a cannon, <laughs> beats a guy's face with cannonballs. <laughs> and then just his like little Han Solo shrug as ever he like lights the cannon and fires it off to get everybody else. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they manage like this genuine revenge story. I mean, looking at Diego's story and Alejandro's story, they both have equal very equal reasons for their revenge. Like, it's pretty fucked up. I mean, he Diego lost his entire family. Alejandro watched his brother die in front of him. He knows exactly who was responsible. Uh, so we know who they're going after. But at the same time, watching them fight, it's fun. They do this weird thing. Like, we talked about it earlier. It's very PG. There's really not much blood or anything. Like, watching them, even whenever people get stabbed and stuff, it's like, yeah, that was fun. Because right after that, like, they do, like, a front flip over somebody and, like, throw them into, like, some shackle or something. Like, it's like, oh, that was cool. <laughs> so it kind of is always disarming you in a weird way as an audience member. And, like, the choreography is spectacular. Watching Antonio Banderas in particular fight is really cool. And like you said, Keith, as well, the setting in particular, I think, is kind of what makes it stand out on top of that. Watching this actual historical moment play out whenever... Spain was going to stop being in control of Mexico, but then a few years pass and it's like, oh, I guess maybe some of that control is coming back. And so now Zorro needs to return. How does that coincide with Santa Ana and the gold rush in California and all this crazy shit? Like, it's genuinely interesting. Like, if Zorro wasn't even in this, all that history is pretty cool. So everything works for me here. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Those are all my favorite parts, too. Yeah, one of the things that was most interesting for me is that they came up with this fictional character and this fictional story, but set it in the context of the historical events, like you said, Matt. And mm-hmm. all of us being from Texas, we're very familiar with Santa Ana. So like hearing that name mentioned and learning about the the Mexican and the American War and then the, the Spaniards having interest too, like all that does make this feel like a very lived in world. It feels very grounded. Um, it also is such a sharp twist from like the dark and moody superhero movies that they kind of make today. Like it is very mm-hmm. uplifting. The score is very joyful and, and chorusy. Um, and then like you guys have said, the action is, is really fun and everybody's kind of smiling. I also like too how Zorro is very different from our other vigilante type characters because he still is very charming and charismatic. And kind of these other vigilantes that are one man shows, all of them have very dark histories and very dark pasts and very traumatizing pasts, but that kind of feeds into their characters being more dark and broody, and Zorro really isn't that way at all in this movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Austin, because like it's so easy to compare to Batman, where it's like, or just modern superheroes, where your alter ego is a fake thing, but then your superhero is like, this is who I really am, and I'm dark, and I'm angry, and I'm sad. Whereas, I mean, Don Diego, and in this movie, 
Don Alejandro. I mean, there, of course, is the serious like elements to their retribution, their revenge story. But ultimately, whenever they're being charming without the Zorro, you know, cape and mask on, it's like, oh, wow, they're actually charming. But then whenever the, the costume goes on, too, oh, wow, yeah, they're, they're still having fun, which is kind of weird. But based on the training, it's like it's kind of cool, too. So I don't know. It's probably more of like a tribute to the acting and like the source material than anything. But it's just a nice difference. Like you said, it's a cool change of pace because everything now, like these days, has to be so dour and kind of sad with these movies. At least like a big element has to. Whereas this one, they had the sad stuff, but it's like, let's move forward and have fun. And like, it's an action adventure movie. So we're going to work with that. And by the end, you'll feel satisfied. But along the way, we're going to have cool fight scenes and you're going to have fun with it, basically. It weirdly looks like the villains are having fun too, which was something that did seem a bit off to me. Like, I don't know, I kind of like it when our villains are serious. And for these villains, it almost looked like they were excited when the Zoros show up. Like, it looks like, yeah. So that was kind of, that was something that just played a little weird for me on this viewing. I guess there are, there are little elements here and there that you could argue. I'm not sure I would, but like Don Raphael, any... Any opportunity he gets to kill Zoro, he says in the beginning, like, Zoro's like, you would kill three innocent people to get the chance to capture me. And he was like, no, I would kill a hundred for the opportunity to kill you. But then when he can kill him, he leaves him alive. I know. I know. It's a great point. Great point. <laughs> and then Harrison Love, who I, I love this character. I love oh, this performance. Yeah, it's so hammy. It's so corny, but I love it. And his only motivation, Austin, like you said, like, why is he so excited? He basically tells us at the beginning, he's just like, I'm the best, so I got to beat the best. <laughs> and that's really it. And you know what? I kind of, at the end, I was like, hmm, that's enough for me. I mean, he was kind of the smartest one, too. Because, I mean, he he knew that Alejandro was Zorro. Yeah, he's like, he's pretty like, yeah, easily. Yeah, your brother, you know, I killed your brother. You'll, you'll turn up soon. And he just would call him out in front of everybody. Didn't well, really Keith, care. we talked about that already. It's because these guys wear... Half of their face is exposed at all times. It's like, Alejandro, that's you. You can wear a pencil-thin mustache, but I recognize you. (laughs) And whereas Don Rafael's like, Diego, like, we have dinner all the time. Like, I recognize your British accent and white face. Like, you're Anthony Hopkins. (laughs) So we've kind of touched on how this is my first time viewing this movie. Um, And for the most part, I will say things work better than they probably should in this movie. Uh, the story is engaging, the performances are fun and charming, and the revenge story is set up well enough to make you care and root for Zoro and Alejandro. The main thing that really didn't work for me in this movie, and I've mentioned it a few times now, is the action. The swords, for whatever reason, seem really flimsy, and every opponent is very clumsy. It's very slapstick and felt like it was filmed for a comedy. How do you guys feel about the action here? Is it something you just look past, or it, or is it one of the reasons that kind of keeps you coming back to this movie? For me, it was just a very weird dynamic to see this very comedic, everyone's falling over each other action paired with this very serious story. For me, I think I can look past it, and I think it still holds up. One of the best movies I think you can compare it to action-wise is probably like Pirates Caribbean. Uh, that's kind of what it reminds me of, is Jack Sparrow and Will Turner kind of going through and using ropes and their swords and doing just funny kind of action scenes. That's kind of what it reminds me of, and it does it for me. But I get what you're saying, though, Austin. It's kind of weird to pair it with more of a serious story. I think the only thing I would say there, Keith, is the choreography in this movie, like every single step feels staged. And it looks like the actors are trying to memorize in their heads like where their blocking is and where they need to be to swing their swords. Whereas I think the Pirates of the Caribbean action feels a little bit more organic. It feels a little bit more improvised and less scripted than Zorro does. That aspect of it is fair. I would say that 
Antonio Banderas, it's we've probably talked about this whenever we talked about the Star Wars prequels or something, but like whenever you watch him fight, it's just so organic. You just believe you're watching somebody back then fighting that way. And even Anthony Hopkins, again, I'll give him credit, at least in like the training scenes where he has an excuse to be a little bit slower, it looks good. But then, like Austin's saying, whenever Antonio Banderas is like, okay, now it's just me on screen and I'm fighting Don Raphael and Harrison Love, it's, yeah, it's a little bit goofy because they aren't as good or maybe they didn't spend as much time. I don't know what the excuse is. As for the action in general... I don't even think it's one of those things where like it's like an aspect of the time. The thing that I think is cool about it is they clearly to me took the they took the legend of Zoro. They took the idea of that character from the past who was always, you know, this kind of fun, fun-loving, goofy character whenever he was fighting like I already said, huge smile on his face trying to have a good time despite everything that was going on whether he was sad and having fun with it. And they did a good job in the beginning of setting up Alejandro as being that kind of character. So whenever he's fighting, like whenever he's in the barn and he like traps a bunch of dudes swords with, between his sword and a knife. And he's like, kind of like twirling around, like, <laughs> like a circling around trying to decide whenever he's going to go. Yeah. It's goofy and it's weird, but it does kind of feel like it falls in line with the pulpy nature of Zorro as a character from the original source material. If you look past that, how does it work in the movie? I, I do actually agree with you. I think it's a little bit hit and miss. I think there's some great scenes whenever they're fighting on horseback and you're watching them actually flipping around on horses and fighting. It's pretty damn cool. There are some sword fights that are cool, but then there are some between characters where, like I already said, it's like, oh, they didn't spend as much time fighting. Whenever Don Raphael is just like two hands on a sword, just like beating him, just like with a sword, it's like, well, that's not that cool. I mean, we're literally watching Zoro like, one hand professional fencer basically it's like like a brute just like trying to slam down isn't nearly as cool so yeah it's a little bit hit or miss i agree with you with the action yeah and i actually do like a lot of when it gets down to like the one-on-one fights i do like a lot of that sword play and that's really where you do get to see antonio banderas use the fencing skills it's just when it's like five or like ten on one and they're like using a rope to knock everybody down or they're swinging into a guy and knocking somebody into each other like a bowling ball or throwing a rope around somebody's gun and spinning him in circles. Like all of that is where it's like, okay, this is definitely a product of its time. <laughs> it's, it does feel a little goofy when like a lot of people are involved. It's like what a lot of movies of that time period did in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like Braveheart, Braveheart was much more violent, obviously, but Braveheart kind of did the same thing. They still had a lot of humor to it, even though this guy had his mm-hmm. wife throat slit in front of him by the, the English but he also had humor in everything he did, so you got it there. True. Uh, I think Kevin Costner's Robin Hood was kind of the same way. That one could be arguable, mm-hmm. but... You also had the Three Musketeers reboot. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I think a lot of movies from the 90s and early 2000s, are just they just knew how to do that, just combined serious stories with humor. It just might be a generational thing. It just might be writers of that time were better at doing that than people are today. So, I think you're right. And Keith, you mentioned Braveheart. I mean, put Sean Connery in that one. He doesn't need to be in Zorro. Put him in Braveheart. Yeah, why What? Why wasn't Sean Connery? He's actually Scottish. <laughs> why wasn't he in that movie? <laughs> uh, so I also do think a, a good vigilante movie needs a strong villain to pair with our protagonists. The Captain Love and Alejandro dynamic worked way more for me than the Monterero and Diego dynamic. For me, I just really like how sinister and just straight up evil Captain Love is. He's a much more easier villain to like root against. And I like all the scenes him and Alejandro have. Whenever Montero and Diego are interacting, they kind of feel like old colleagues and in a weird way feel like they're loosely friends. Um, I don't know. That's that's kind of the impression I got from their relationship on this watch. 
I agree with you. I mean, part of me says it's on purpose. I think the Captain Love Alejandro thing works way better for sure because we actually get very clear reasons why they're at odds. Like I already said, Captain Love is just out for glory. He basically says as much. So he just wants to be the best. So he's trying to chase down the best bandits out there. He got one of them, but his brother's still on the run. and He's going to chase him down, of course. That becomes our main character. Um, so watching them do their back and forth is pretty cool. Like he said earlier, the fact that Captain Love is like the actual person to be like, hey, man, I know who you're Alejandro. I know that. Like, this is kind of weird that you're here. Like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> like, okay, that was actually kind of cool. And then their final fight is pretty cool and pretty yeah. badass. And the fact, like, it is a little bit more brutal than the rest of the movie is kind of cool and earned. Captain Love feels intimidating when he's on screen, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then going to the whole Don Diego and Raphael thing, I do agree with Austin. Um, it, and again, we got to use the Batman thing. It's it's basically like if Don Diego's Batman, Don Raphael's Lex Luthor, and Lex Luthor just found out that he's Batman, he's going to sick his goons on him, essentially. The only problem is, and I, it did stick out to me on this rewatch and the one I did a couple years back whenever I was older, I was like, it is a little bit weird because Austin, like you said, they clearly run in the same circles because Don Raphael talks about how much he loved and tried to court Don Diego's wife. But then in the opening scene, when Don Diego as Zorro confronts Don Raphael, there's a clear moment where, where Diego's talking to him, where Raphael just like goes in his head. He doesn't say anything, but he just goes, you see his eyes move and he's like, oh, you're Diego. Like, I recognize you, and I recognize your voice. And of course, the problem is, have they never talked before? Ever? It seems like they would have. And if they haven't, then it's just one of those weird things. I shouldn't be questioning it. The problem, like, So like you said, Austin, it's like, I don't have any questions when it comes to Alejandro and Captain Love, but there are some kind of weird nitpicky questions when it comes to Diego and Raphael, where it's like, how did this happen? <laughs> so it's a bit goofy. In the opening scene too, Matt, um, Diego is a Don and he has that huge villa. Yeah. So he definitely is interacting with the government. And mm -hmm. even when uh, Raphael shows up, he's like, oh, the governor, what a surprise. You got to stay for dinner. Like this has happened before. Like they've definitely yep. had dinner before. So he's clearly had opportunities to be alone with Raphael. Why hasn't he just killed him then? It's a really good question. <laughs> Their relationship really just raised a lot of questions for me. And then also, like, when Don Diego's wife dies, Raphael goes, he softens for a moment, and he's like, I never intended for her to get hurt. Then he ultimately ends up not killing Diego. Like, they definitely have some sort of history, and it seems like they both have boundaries that they won't cross with each other. Which is kind of cool, but then, it, like, I mean, Keith, what did you think? Like, whenever it got to stuff later, 20 years later, did it work for you? Whenever it's, like, Raphael's coming to check the jail, or, like, did the payoff of that work for you? Yeah, I completely forgot about the jail scene until I rewatched it. That was kind of weird. <laughs> it's like 20 years later. Why is he looking from 20 years later? Why not like 10 <laughs> years later or 15 years later? Why did he wait so long? It's because he's going back to California. Oh. And Zorro told him, never go back to California. Problem is, though, why didn't Zorro escape earlier and just like travel to Spain and kill him and take his daughter back? That's what I thought about on this viewing. <laughs> I don't know. But I did like the fact that they kind of, like when it is 20 years later, uh, Raphael and um, Diego kind of just let the younger guys do their fighting form in a way. Yeah, I like that too. All right, guys, so through this point in here, I just wanted to do some quick hits to see what you thought about some just random things that I, I guess, made note of along the way. So what did you guys think 
of the whole Alejandro being recruited and being trained by the original Zorro, do the training sequences work for you? Kind of like any other training montage you see in other films and TV shows, watching him get into shape, watching him lose the hair, get a bit more refined, add the charm. Did all that stuff work for you? There was a lot of it. So if it didn't, that might be a negative. I liked it. Yeah, I liked the good wisdom that he brought to him and how it compares to other training scenes. We're going to talk about it here, comparing this character to Batman, but it was kind of Ra's al Ghul. Bruce Wayne training in a way. It kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, I'm a sucker for a good training montage, so it worked for me. Him doing push-ups over candles was pretty fun. I also like how like laissez-faire Diego is during the training. Like he's so he's he's got his feet up on him while he's doing push-ups. He's reading a book. Like it seems like he's just kind of enjoying he's really enjoying passing the mantle to somebody else, you can tell too. Yeah. And also, I mean, we talked about the the dress cutting off scene. Is there a more sensual scene than than Anthony Hopkins and Antonio Banderas? Anthony Hopkins is holding Antonio Banderas in the water while he's shaving him. I mean, come on. Give me some of that action. <laughs> Golly, that could have been a whole movie. Could have been a whole film. <laughs> the mentor falls for his mentee. You know what? In the sequel, maybe we get it. Spoiler alert, we don't. But maybe in the third film that never happens, maybe we'll get it. Who's to say? Um, it's also funny to bring up. We probably could have lost the whole dress cutting scene and like the fight between Alejandro and Elena yeah. and some of their stuff. But that being said, if we lose some of that, do you guys still think their relationship is good by the end? Because I actually think in the long run, like watching that ending sequence of them together with a kid, it, it kind of makes you go, yeah, I believe that. Like they had good chemistry. So do you think that uh, kind of they did a decent job of setting up their relationship despite him at times playing Don Alejandro and sometimes he's playing Zorro in front of her? Like, do you think they kind of managed all that well? Yeah, it's always hard in movies like this when two characters spend maybe a total of 10 minutes on screen together and you're supposed to buy that they're in love by the end of the movie. But these two have such great chemistry that I totally bought it. The only thing I didn't like about their relationship is I, I don't really like Alejandro manipulating elena when she thinks he's a priest that she is confessing to that yeah. scene didn't really work for me in this one there was a funny line in that though <laughs> i like the whole like three days like go back and give me some more time <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it was funny that, that that part was funny i kind of wish it had ended there though yeah for sure and then like watching her smile uh whenever she realizes that she wasn't talking to the priest and then seeing the whole cut in the top of the booth was like okay i see she gets it that was pretty cool um, and then, yeah, just the last thing I wanted to bring up, it, it's pretty surprising, I would say, how long, it's pretty much right before the climax that uh, Don Diego reveals to Alejandro that Rafael is his kind of mortal enemy and Elena is his daughter. Pretty big reveal. Alejandro seems to take it well. And also, I think Don Diego seems to appreciate that Alejandro has feelings for her. But how did you guys like the whole him revealing himself to her and then how that kind of played out in the finale whenever he's fighting Raphael and she's a little bit conflicted until things get a bit more heated. Did that all work for you too? It worked for me for the most part, but one thing I was kind of a little confused by, she didn't really have a huge reaction whenever her, what she thought was dad, die. She's like, oh, it's not my dad. I thought he was my dad for 20 something years and loved him and everything. He just, he's dead now. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't have a really big reaction to that. I actually think she did, Keith, because she originally does get in the way of Diego trying to kill Raphael, but then Raphael holds a gun to her head. So I, I think after that happens... Yeah, she's kind of cool. <laughs> but I, I did kind of like how she does get in the way of that, because it's pretty clear she's had a good life, and Raphael is the man that's raised her for 20 years. So it's not like she's going to immediately flip sides when Diego reveals himself to her. So I, I did like that she was conflicted for a few scenes. 
I also like that they kind of seeded in some, again, some scenes that maybe we didn't need in the long term, but I still thought that they were important for her character. Like whenever she's walking through the streets and her old babysitter recognizes her and there's this kind of weird sequence where it's like, oh, I raised you. Like, you know, I, I babysat you for Don Diego and Esperanza. And she's like, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, I can't accept this gift. And then later, of course, whenever she hears the name Don Diego, it's like, it's a little bit more believable why she would instantly defend Diego whenever Captain Love is about to kill him. She stands in front of him and it's like, okay, it's kind of cool. It's like there isn't this weird thing. Like like Austin said, like I do think it's believable that she would defend Don Rafael in terms of him dying. But in terms of her believing that Diego's her father, they did like an equally good job of making her want to defend him as well in that sense too. So I think I think that was pretty cool. So yeah, let's talk about the character Zoro just a little bit more and different adaptations that could be possible in the future for any reboots. So chronologically speaking, uh, I like how he is one of like the earlier vigilante mass types, you know, being in the 1800s, fighting for independence from Spain, and just your general crime as well. I think we did mention in the trivia earlier, we read that the original stories inspire characters like Batman and others. So how do you guys feel about Zoro as a Western superhero kind of type? We kind of talked about it a little bit, but I just think it's really cool. I just think it's so cool to have a modern adaptation of this kind of character, like you said, Keith, that was adapted so long ago. And it's just it's just such a cool timeline thing. I mean, Zoro was created in 1919. Like, how crazy is that, first of all? And then, like, 20-ish years later, you start to see characters like Batman come about. And then... Because years after that, you get characters based on Batman that start to be created. And then in the 1990s, you've already had live-action movies of Zorro in the past. You've had live-action movies at that point of Batman, of course. But then to get a movie like this in the late 90s that is so modern and timeless for the most part, for the most part, and it's feeling, it's like... This is such like a weird, cool feeling because I'm watching this movie and appreciating the Zorro elements from the original source material, but I'm also watching it and seeing how a movie like Batman Begins is created. I'm watching this movie and seeing how a movie like Casino Royale with James Bond even happened in the first place. Same director. Exactly. Yeah. In terms of that tone and that balance. Like, it's just so cool. Like, that's the best thing I can say about it. Like, watching how... You're watching a movie based on the source material, but now this movie is influenced by the things that it originally influenced, if that makes sense. So it just makes it an even better product, I think. So, I, yeah, I think it's just really cool. I would love to see more from this franchise, especially in like our current like 2020s. Um, mm -hmm. I was actually thinking about this earlier, and I would love to see a future movie with a similar structure of this one, but I would want to see Antonio Banderas as an older Zorro passing the mantle to Pedro Pascal. That'd be so cool. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, if we can't get Pedro in there, I know he's busy. As long as we just get the third film to cap off the trilogy with him as an older man passing it on to someone, I'll take it as a win. We got to get Antonio Banderas back in this role. Yeah, these movies do a really, like, we already mentioned it so many times, but they do a really good job of just following the historical events. Like, Legend of Zorro just picks up right after this one, like, eight years later in 1849 yeah. when California is about to become a state. So yeah, like you said, like if you do a third adaptation or a sequel to this movie, oh, I guess it would take place in the 1850s or 1860s. Yeah, I guess a little, I guess I don't know what Zorro's involvement in the Civil War would be. Admittedly, I guess I don't know my history. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, mo I mean, moving on though, I mean, what would you guys think of like a more like more violent, more darker rated R version of Zorro? Yeah, I'm glad you added this to the outline, Keith, because 
I was looking up on IMDb and there actually is a planned Django slash Zorro movie in the works. Uh, it's rumored that Tarantino is he's Tarantino's producing it. They're trying to get him to direct it. And they also want Antonio Banderas to return. I saw that too. And the thing, the most notable thing to note about this is this just came about in 2019. So it's not like this has been something tossed around since Django and Chain came out. This is something they pretty much just came up with. And Austin's right. I mean, that's pretty damn cool. And it's one of those things that you can play around with because Antonio Banderas is also now like 20 years older than whenever he last played Zorro. So you can kind of fudge the timelines a bit. And I believe if I read the IMDb right, Austin, correct me if I'm wrong, the whole thing was like, uh, Django meets uh, Don Alejandro and becomes his bodyguard now that he's an yeah. aging Zorro or something like that. And maybe there's an element in there of him training a younger Zorro. I don't know. It sounded cool as shit. I hope it happens. They did have an image on there and it could just be a placeholder image, but the image itself was animated. So I'm not yeah. sure if this is if that's just a placeholder image or if they're working on like an animated thing. And just having the actors voice the characters, I wasn't really... There's just no information out at the moment. Yeah. It did say that Jamie Foxx would do it, though. So it's like, it's not like it would be just a random thing to have an excuse for Zorro to happen. Like, Jamie Foxx would be down to play Django again. And so, we'll see. Sounded pretty cool. But yeah, going back to the original question, Keith, about like the R-rated. I mean, Austin and Keith, is that something you guys would want after seeing something like this? Do you want to see something with more blood, more violence? What do you think? It's also another reason the Robert Rodriguez direction didn't work out because he wanted to do a hard R in the studio. In addition to not agreeing on a budget, they were open to a hard R, but they weren't sure if they wanted to go like Robert Rodriguez level violence with the movie. But for this character, I think that would be really cool. Would y'all want to see like a Tarantino-esque character? Like this, instead of having the family friendly action, his sword's like straight up like spewing blood and, and all the crazy Tarantino violent stuff coming from him. So would that be digestible or where we kind of want the the family friendly Antonia Banderas Zorro. I want the darkness. Like I said the action was kind of too slapstick for me. So I would love to see what this looks like in a hard R setting. I'm all for new takes on things. And I don't think we've gotten something quite that hardcore when it comes to Zorro. I know there's like a billion different adaptations between so many different mediums, so maybe there is. I'm not privy to it. It it sounds cool in theory um doing something like that, but maybe I'm in the minority. Keith, I don't know how you feel, but After watching this movie, we kind of talked about a little bit how the balance is off for some people in terms of the serious revenge story or just the serious story in general and then kind of the fun, more swashbuckling nature of the choreography. I don't know what it would be like. I mean, watching Zorro like happy and smiling as he's like slicing limbs and you're saying more blood and stuff. I don't know if that works. You'd have to change the character. You would. I mean, you'd have to make him probably a bit more of a serious character as opposed to one more into the whole swashbuckling. It'd probably be a bit darker. But again, that goes along with it's a different take. So I think I'm with Austin that I'd like to see it. I'd like to see what that might look like. I don't know if I'm as interested in it as if they like announce like, hey, we're doing a third Zorro movie with Antonio Banderas. It's rated PG or PG-13. Or if they announce just another movie along the same lines. Like I, I might be more interested in that than something R-rated, but I'd have to I'd have to see it to kind of, I think, visualize it a bit, because you you really would have to change the character of Zorro to make it work for R-rated. As far as Django and Zorro, I think that would probably be pretty cool. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. Yeah, that, sound, that definitely sounds cool. And I love that, because Tarantino's so weird with actors and actresses. It's like, hey, would you work with this person? And he's always like, 
no, I don't like that person. It's like a, it'll be like a really famous actor or actress, but the fact that he and Jamie Foxx were like, if we're doing this, it has to be Antonio Banderas. It's like, okay, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> like, at least at least they kind of agree with us that he's the best part of this movie, so they would do that. It sounds pretty cool. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about the R-rated, but I mean, that concept sounds pretty damn cool. We've already talked about how this, how Zorro and its adaptations influence Batman and other kind of vigilante characters, I was reading that in the original Zorro stories that Zorro actually had a butler named Bernardo, which is what they played on with Anthony Hopkins playing or pretending to be his butler, Bernardo. That's kind of what influenced the Alfred and Bruce Wayne duo. I mean, there's even more things than that that they show in this movie. I mean, Don Diego, again, Don Diego is the one, if you're reading Zorro or watching Zorro, he, that is the typical Zorro. This movie obviously changed that up a bit, but Don Diego is a Don. He, he's rich as shit lives in a villa. His parents were rich. One of them died. He has a cave under his house where he stores his horse that is like his means of transportation. It's also where he trains, also where he does his recon. He has a butler that helps him kind of stay humble and figure shit out. Like, I mean, it's it's literally Batman. And that's not taking anything away from Batman. But if, like, if you look at the original 1940s Batman stories, they were goofy as shit too. Yeah. So it's like, Zorro's literally Batman. <laughs> I mean, it's just a direct adaptation, which is cool as hell because you can watch all the adaptations and see how they influence each other over time. So... It's really cool. Everything influences each other too. I mean, just look at Bond. Like they, with the modern Bonds, they were influenced by Bourne and stuff like yep. that. Like every every piece of media always is going to bleed into each other. Yeah. Uh, okay, Matt. So any, we're going to start closing things out now, but any closing thoughts on The Mask of Zorro? I will say, as we've been talking, I've been finding myself looking back more fondly on certain things about this movie. Yeah. And that's awesome to hear. I think, um, I just, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite action adventure movies, like I said. I think as we kind of talked about, and there are some nitpicks along the way, but ultimately I feel like this movie is just really balancing some really cool shit in the sense that there's a really serious story at its heart. You got some revenge, which is always fun to watch play out. You get two times the revenge in the story too. You get a cool adaptation of Zorro. You get a really great performance by Antonio Banderas. You get to watch all of these characters come to fruition at the end. It's super satisfying. And then I don't know, watching the whole historical fiction aspect too and how they kind of seated these characters in there is kind of what makes this movie stand out to me as well. It's just, it's doing so many different things at once that you wouldn't expect from like a late 90s action adventure movie. So I think that's what makes it one of my favorites. And Keith did a great job at the beginning of saying why he loved it too. It's just comfort food. And for me, that's what it is too. And I accept that sometimes with movies or just media like that, whenever you say it's comfort food, it doesn't mean it's perfect or even great. Uh, there are certainly issues with it, like we talked about. But I think this one just has so much style and substance that it stands above its issues that it does admittedly have. So one of my favorites. So glad we got to talk about it. And I'm looking forward to another round of our favorite movies in the future because I know we're going to pick some more good ones and it's going to be super fun. All right. So we're going to close things out. But of course, before we do... We do need to do our Arnie's Podcast Awards. If you're new this week, this is a segment where we give an award to anything in this episode. Keith always starts us off. Keith, what is your award today? Yeah, I know this award today, I'm not. it's not going to be a funny one. This will be more of a serious one for me. And this is the most underrated badassery award. And that goes to Mr. 
Joaquin Murrieta, the brother of Alejandro. Ooh. I wish he could have been in the movie a little bit longer, but I get that the sacrifice he made was necessary to move the events along. Something I never understood as a kid either. I love that his immediate response to Captain Love, he just immediately recognizes this is one of those assholes that all he cares about is glory and status. And the second he says, like, I've caught Joaquin Murrieta, like the most famous bandit. He just instantly kills himself. He's like, no, fuck you. No, you're not. I'm not going to let you kill me. (laughs) It's just like, it's sad, but it's also like kind of in a weird way. It was pretty cool. Kind of cool too. I don't know. Austin, what do you got? Was your first time viewing? I'm excited to hear your award today. Yeah, I had a few floating around. I wanted to give the best horse rider to Zorro, but that was just too on too easy. I wanted to give the best thin mustaches to the entire cast of crew because everybody's got a thin mustache in this movie. However, I settled on the best shovel surfer to Alejandro because he surfs a shovel down a mountain, and I've never seen anybody do that in a movie before. Admittedly, was it 100% necessary? I don't know, but <laughs> it was still cool. <laughs> My word today is a tough one to word, so I think I'm just going to give it the, hmm, okay, award. And this is going to Don Diego de la Vega, whenever he broke out of prison by pouring gunpowder in the lock and then lighting a fuse. I'll be honest, whenever he reacted like, ooh, ow, I was like, (laughs) I feel like the entire room should have blown up. (laughs) I thought his ankle was going to be blown up. (laughs) No. He's definitely got some shrapnel in his legs, for sure. He definitely should be unwell. He should be limping. He shouldn't be able to train. But you know what? I'm glad that this movie gave us a, hmm, okay moment. Because if they hadn't, then we wouldn't have gotten the rest of this great film. So with that, everybody, that closes out our esteemed award ceremony. Antonio Banderas, Anthony Hopkins, and the rest of you out there. Just check your mailboxes for those awards, please. And let us know. Do you like them? Uh, And with that, thanks everybody else for listening. If you enjoy this episode and the series, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we'd really appreciate that so we can continue to grow the show. Please leave us reviews as well, even if you don't want to write anything. Leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just wherever you get your podcasts really does help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. We'll be back on Tuesday to definitively decide, Austin and Keith. It is time. The brackets are back in full force. And what are we talking about? We have no season. There's no holiday to worry about. It could be anything. It's comedies, baby. What is the best comedy of all time? We've got some good ones on there, some bad ones on there, some that we thought would hold up that didn't, some that we weren't sure would hold up but did. We got such a gamut, and we've been talking about it for a few weeks. I genuinely think this might be the hardest one yet, despite there being some ones we might not like. Comedy is subjective, as they say. So how do we determine it? It's going to come down to the votes. We might have some unhappy people. We'll see what happens. This is the bracket that we've had to make the most substitutions for, too, because <laughs> we've gone back. Some didn't hold up. We've had to put in some new ones. A lot of uh, fine-tuning our matchups for this episode. This might actually be the bloodiest battle yet. Ooh. I don't know. Explain, Keith. Come on, give us a little tease. What do you think so? I know Keith is really passionate about his, so. Maybe I am, but maybe I'm not awesome. I just rewatched one of them, and I was like, mm, it's, it's funny, but I don't know if it's going to be up there. I don't know. I think we're all going to have some mixed ideas. When we did romantic comedies, we had two things. Like, is it romantic and is it funny? But this one we only have, is it funny? So I think it's going to make it harder. It's going to be tough. I'm scared. 
I'm scared. I'll be honest. Austin, please, before I have a panic attack, close us out. What do you got? And of course, our bonus series covering Loki will continue later this week. Time to hopefully get more answers about the TVA and the Timekeepers. As always, our recaps and review will be available on Friday. And don't forget, Matthew and I are getting together once again. It's the end of the month. We'll be putting out another episode of Co-op Couch, our monthly gaming show, pretty soon. And we'll be talking about all the biggest news from E3 2021. And lastly, we want to hear from you. Message us on Instagram at The Arnie's or email us uh, thearniesmedia at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts on Zorro. Send us your favorite comedies. Let us know your theories on Loki. Anything you say, we'll read on the show and react to it live on our latest episode. And with that, everybody, I am a white person, so I just want you to know that in a, in a future Zorro film, you might see me, so keep an eye out for my face. I might be cast in a lead role <laughs> based on the way they cast this film. Same with Austin and Keith. We're champions of this movie. So if anybody out there, if you're directing a Zorro film, we are not British, but I guess... Maybe we could play Spaniards. We'll think about it. In the meantime, I got to go read some lines and prepare for my audition. So we'll see you later. See you. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.